Hello and welcome back to the fall of the Roman Empire. It's Nick Holmes and this is episode 53 called Attila the Hun. In the last episode, we heard about how the joint Eastern and Western Roman army that gathered in Sicily in late 440, ready to recapture Carthage from Geyseric and his Vandals, never set sail. The reason was that in 441, the Eastern legions were recalled back to Constantinople to face an emergency. That emergency was the Huns. Indeed, by the time the Eastern Roman soldiers were disembarking from their boats in 442, the Huns had already crossed the Danube and taken the major fortress town of Nysus, just south of the Danube and the gateway to Constantinople. And at their head was a man who would dominate the history of both halves of the Roman Empire for the next decade, Attila the Hun. Let's take a step back and catch up on what the Huns have been doing until now. You know they appeared out of Asia in the 360s and 70s. No one knows quite why, although, as we've discussed a lot in this podcast, the evidence increasingly points to a mega drought on the Asian steppes in the mid-4th century as being the main culprit. First, they subjugated the Alans, who were an Indo-European nomadic race living in the region north of the Black Sea. And then they invaded the lands north of the Danube, so they acquired a large area corresponding roughly to modern Ukraine, Romania, Moldova and Hungary. To begin with, their effect on the Romans was indirect because all they were doing was to push the German tribes west into the Roman Empire. So the Goths were the first to be pushed, and in 376 they fled across the Danube looking for asylum in Roman territory, and the rest, as they say, is history. But in the mid-5th century, when several German tribes had migrated and set up home in the Roman Empire, the Huns posed more of a direct threat as they created a state right on Rome's borders that was stronger than Rome itself. And that Hunnic Empire was ruled by the most famous Hun of all, Attila. One problem with the Huns is that the vast majority of them were illiterate, and so we have no written records from them telling us about the rise and fall of their empire. Almost all of what we know comes from Roman sources or Chinese sources for their far eastern cousins. But it's worth noting the Huns that invaded Europe were quite separate from their cousins over in the Far East. And as we covered in episode 36, no one really knows what they even looked like. Did they still look Mongolian or in the 200 years after they left Mongolia and spread west, had they mixed with other races? Well, most historians think they had and consequently they probably looked like a mix of Indo-European and Mongolian. Certainly, as we will discover, the Hunnic Empire that formed in Central and Eastern Europe was exceptionally racially diverse with a strong Germanic element. We have only one description of Attila, which comes from a Roman writer called Priscus, who undertook an extraordinary journey to visit him in 449, which you'll hear much more about in due course. He said about Attila, quote, He was a man born into the world to shake the nations, the scourge of all lands, who in some way terrified all mankind by the dreadful rumours 
heard abroad concerning him. He was haughty in his walk, rolling in his eyes hither and thither, so that the power of his proud spirit appeared in the movement of his body. He was indeed a lover of war, yet restrained in action, mighty in counsel, gracious to suppliants, and lenient to those who were once received into his protection. He was short of stature, with a broad chest and a large head. His eyes were small, his beard thin and sprinkled with grey, and he had a flat nose and a swarthy complexion, showing the evidence of his origin. End quote. So Attila seems to have looked reasonably Mongolian, but he wasn't born on the steppes, and instead he was probably born around 400 on the Great Hungarian Plain, where the Huns set up the centre of their empire. His father was called Mundiuk, and his mother is unknown. Mundiuk was brother to Oktar and Rua, who were the joint kings of the Huns in the late 420s and 30s, and with whom Aetius had established good relations when he was sent to live with them as a hostage. Before Oktar and Rua, we know very little about the Hunnic kings, with only a couple of them mentioned by the Romans, principally a king called Uldin, who, you'll recall, helped Stilicho fight the Goth Radagaisus, and who invaded Thrace in 408. Another king called Caraton is described as receiving an embassy from the Emperor Theodosius II, led by the Roman chronicler and diplomat Olympiodorus, who wrote an extensive history of the early 5th century, which has unfortunately been lost, but which is nevertheless thought to have been used by the sources we rely on, like Zosimus and Sosimon, as their principal historical source. He was a colourful character devoted to his pet parrot, who apparently could sing and dance and talk in Greek. But back to the Huns, historians now think Uldin and Caraton were only minor Hunnic kings, of which there were probably many before Oktar and Rua merged the Hunnic confederation. During this time, relations between the Romans and Huns were mostly quite cordial because the Huns were intent on subjugating the Germans and even regarded the Romans as allies against them, as shown by their alliance with Stilicho against the Goths. It was also at this time that Aetius and no doubt other Romans were sent as hostages to the Hunnic court to guarantee honourable conduct. But these amicable relations were very superficial, and the East Romans knew well that things could turn nasty. So, in the mid-400s, as you've already heard, the Praetorian prefect for the East, Anthemius, had started construction of the famous Theodosian walls protecting Constantinople, which can still be seen in Istanbul today. They were probably finished around 413, and it was a good thing they were, since in 422, Rua and Oktar upped the stakes by demanding that the Eastern Romans pay them £350 of gold as tribute every year. The Eastern Roman Empire was far wealthier than its Western cousin, and Theodosius was happy to pay the gold to have an easy life. Things carried on nicely between the Huns and Romans, with Aetius using his Hunnic connections to recruit 
Hunnic mercenaries who probably became the most important part of the Western Empire's army. We know almost nothing about Hunnic politics in the 420s and 30s, except that Oktar died fighting the Burgundians in 430, leaving Rua to rule alone. However, despite the payment of £350 of gold as the Huns became more established in their new home on the Hungarian plains, they seem to have regarded the Romans less as allies and more as a rather attractive golden goose. In 434, things took a decided turn for the worst for the Romans when Rua crossed the Danube and invaded Thrace. This caused the immediate recall of the eastern general Aspar, who'd been holding back the Vandals in North Africa and who'd saved Carthage. Fortunately for Aspar, he didn't need to meet the Huns in a pitch battle, since Rua suddenly died. The Hunnic advance came to a grinding halt, and then they retreated back to the Hungarian plains in order to decide the succession. Theodosius II was not slow to point out that he'd been doing a lot of praying to God recently, and as emperor he did of course have a direct line to the Holy Father. The Romans believed him, and the official version quickly became established that Rua had been incinerated by a bolt of lightning in answer to the emperor's prayers. The bells rang out in every Roman church, and the Romans sat back and thanked God they were Christian. However, this was where their luck ran out, for back on the Hungarian plain, two new unknown leaders seized power. Blader and his brother called Attila. And yes, that Attila, the one who within a few years would become known as the scourge of God and the most feared man on the planet. Oh dear. We have no idea of the politics behind this decision. We don't know if Rua had children, but if he did, they were presumably eliminated by Blader and Attila. The only thing we can be certain about is that Hunnic politics was brutal and bloody. For example, we know that two royal relations, probably cousins of Blader and Attila, fled to the East Roman Empire at this time, only to be returned at Hunnic insistence. The moment they were handed over, both of them were impaled, which was the typical form of Hunnic capital punishment. So getting to the top of the Hunnic greasy pole was clearly not for the faint-hearted or squeamish. After Rua's death, there was a period of Hunnic inactivity from 435 until 439, which is explained by some historians as because of Attila's attack on Persia. However, there's absolutely no evidence of this in the primary sources, and I think this is a misunderstanding because of a mention in Priscus's account that ambassadors from Aetius's Western Empire suggested to Attila that, if he was so powerful, why then didn't he look to attack the Persians, who, like the Romans, had plenty of gold? However, in the same passage, it's also said that attacking Persia from Central Europe would make no sense since the distance from the plains of Hungary all the way to the Middle East would be far too great for the Huns. 
It wasn't like in 395 when you'll remember the Huns raided the Middle East because they were located some 800 miles further east and just above the Caucasus and therefore in a prime location to break into the Middle East. It's also worth noting that Persia would be raided by the Huns, but they weren't Attila's Huns. They were a totally separate group called the Hephthalites, or White Huns, who would reduce Persia to vassalage later in the 5th century. So what was going on in the Hunnic Empire during the late 430s? Well, we have no written records, but archaeological evidence unearthed over the last few decades has provided a fascinating new perspective. And that is that the Hunnic Empire was really more Germanic than Hunnic. For the excavation of thousands of burial sites in Hungary and Eastern Europe dating back to the 5th century clearly shows that far more Germans were being buried than Huns. There are some Hunnic graves which are clearly distinguished by things like their unique type of bow, Hunnic cauldrons, which are very distinctive, and also elongated skulls, which result from the popular Hunnic practice of cranial deformation by binding the heads of babies. But the majority are Germanic, with long straight German swords and an abundance of Germanic objects like brooches, buckles and jewellery. There's also, of course, an abundance of Roman objects, especially gold and silver tableware found in both sets of graves. The preponderance of German burials suggests that what the Huns were really doing was ruling a vast network of German tribes. It's no coincidence that at this time the migration of German tribes into the Roman Empire suddenly stopped. The reason was that Germania had basically split into two halves. Those Germans who'd already fled west into the Roman Empire to escape the Huns and those who'd stayed behind and were now ruled by the Huns. So, in the 430s and 40s, the Hunnic Empire that Attila and Bleda inherited comprised a thin veneer of Huns, ruling a huge host of German tribes, including the Gepids, Rugians, Suevi, Skiri, Heruli, Lombards, Thuringians, and even some Alemanni and Franks. This means the Hunnic armies were almost certainly mainly Germanic. Historians estimate Hunnic warriors as numbering not much more than 15,000, and the Hunnic armies were supplemented by tens of thousands of Germans. It's also worth noting the Germans were not slaves. The excavated burial chambers of German leaders contain plentiful gold and signs of wealth, so they were well rewarded by the Huns for their loyalty. So, in the 430s, the Huns were not inactive. They were busy building a great empire far more powerful than the individual groups of Germans like the Franks, Visigoths and Vandals who'd partitioned much of the Western Roman Empire between them. Those Germans had been bad enough for the Romans, but suddenly, in the 430s, the Romans were faced with something far, far worse, a genuine Hunnic superpower right on their very own doorstep. And that superpower now decided 
It wanted to make clear who was the boss. Rua had already started this process, but Blader and Attila took it a step further. In 439, they demanded a meeting with the Romans outside the Roman city of Margus on the Danube, which was the border demarcating the two empires. We have a vivid description of this from the Roman chronicler Priscus. The Huns were on horseback and refused to dismount, so that the Roman delegation, which no doubt had some nice tables and chairs all prepared and probably lots of tasty Roman snacks, climbed back onto their horses and listened to the demands made by the new Hunnic leaders. First was a doubling of the annual tribute from £350 of gold to £700. Second was on the subject of refugees. What they said provides us with an interesting insight into Hunnic politics, for Blader and Attila were keen to get their hands on refugees who'd fled into Roman territory. We can assume that these were royal relations or senior Huns who posed some sort of threat to the two brothers. As mentioned, we know that two royal relations were immediately handed over, only to be impaled on the spot. Blader and Attila wanted more a lot more, which the Romans promised to return once they could find them. They also insisted that the Romans must grant no one else asylum. Then, on a more mundane level, they said they needed to set up some trading agreements between the two empires. And finally, just to show that they weren't all bad, they offered to return some Roman prisoners. The Roman response was to cave in. They agreed to double the gold subsidy and all the other demands, not least because news arrived that the Vandals had taken Carthage. The East Romans thought this was a bigger threat than the Huns, since Geyseric could build a fleet to challenge Roman domination of the Mediterranean. The East Roman army began to assemble, ready to sail for Africa, knowing that the Hunnic bully had been bought off. Or so they thought. But the bully was getting bolder. Not much more than a year later, the Huns were back. This time, they said they were fed up because they'd not received all the other refugees they wanted. There was also some altercation in the city of Margus over the new trading arrangements, with a punch-up in which quite a few Roman merchants were killed. But to show that they still had a sense of humour, the Huns accused the Bishop of Margus of crossing over the Danube to steal valuables from the Hunnic royal tombs. Now they demanded he was delivered to them for punishment. This turned out to be a cunning pretext. For the terrified bishop, anxiously awaiting the footsteps of Roman soldiers coming to arrest him, did a deal with the Huns to open the city gates in exchange for their dropping the charges. Although the treacherous bishop's fate is unknown, the Huns walked into Margus and took control of a major Roman fortified city, controlling a broad stretch of the Danube. They also took several Roman forts along the river, including a major one at Viminacium. Then they advanced to the next Roman strong point, which was the city of Nisus, famous for being the birthplace of Constantine the Great. This had gigantic walls, which had easily fended off the Goths over the previous century. Its inhabitants no doubt thought they would be safe. After all, every Roman knew barbarians were awful at siegecraft. Unfortunately for them, the Huns were not like other barbarians. They were actually extremely good at siege warfare. Our Roman chronicler Priscus has left us with another vivid description this time of the fall of the city. 
Quote, battering rams were brought up. They were large machines. A beam is suspended by slack chains from timbers which incline together and it's provided with a sharp metal point and screens for the safety of those working it. With short ropes attached to the rear, men vigorously swing the beam away from the target of the blow and then release it. From the walls, the defenders tumbled down wagon-sized boulders. Some rams were crushed together with the men working them, but they couldn't hold out against the great number of machines. Then the enemy brought up scaling ladders. The barbarians entered through the part of the circuit wall, broken by the blows of the rams, and also over the scaling ladders, and the city was taken." End quote. How did the Huns gain these skills at siegecraft which had eluded all the Germanic barbarians? Many theories have been put forward from ancient knowledge dating back to when they'd been part of the Zongnu Hun Empire that had devastated so many Chinese cities to their working closely with Aetius's Roman army and learning siege warfare from them. I think it was probably simply that their organisational skills were far superior to those of the Germans. They could pool their knowledge and organise it to achieve results that the disorganised Goths had never been able to do. The fall of Nisus shocked the East Romans. Their army was immediately recalled from Sicily, ending Roman hopes of crushing the Vandals. This had enormous strategic consequences. The Western Empire now permanently lost its richest province outside Italy. Indeed, it was now confined to just Italy, southern Gaul and Illyria. Its fate was well and truly sealed. Meanwhile, Constantinople couldn't wait for the army to return, afraid that Attila and Blader would advance straight towards the imperial capital. Theodosius sued for peace. The only fact we know is that the gold tribute was again doubled, taking it to £1,400 of gold. No doubt other conditions were also accepted by the Romans, like the return of more refugees. The Huns went home and Theodosius II felt humiliated. God had not come to his rescue this time. So, he planned his revenge. The army was massively strengthened. Recruitment of large numbers of Isaurians from the highlands of Cilicia, tough fighters who Constantinople had recruited instead of Germanic mercenaries, bolstered the legions. A programme of extensive frontier fort building was implemented. In 443, the Romans even felt bold enough to stop paying the annual subsidy to the Huns. Theodosius threw down the gauntlet for another round with Attila. But nothing happened. Why? Because Attila was busy securing his sole leadership of the Huns. In 444 or 5, he had his brother Blader murdered. As so often with Hunnic politics, we know nothing about what really happened except Attila emerged as the leader of the most powerful Hunnic empire that had ever existed west of Mongolia. Furious that the Eastern Romans had not paid their tribute, he mobilised all his forces. In 447, a massive Hunnic army crossed the Danube. The newly strengthened and confident Roman army advanced to meet it, led by a capable and brave general called Anagisclus. The battle for the East 
had begun. And that ends this episode. Thanks so much for listening and I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, of course, I'd be delighted for any ratings or reviews in whichever podcast app you use. And we'll continue with the story of the great war between Attila the Hun and the Romans in the next episode, which I'm sorry to say will yet again be in two weeks' time on the 11th of March, since I'm still working on the publication of my second book, although I hope soon to be back to a weekly podcast. And in the meantime, if you want to hear more about the Romans, please sign up to my newsletter at Nick Holmes Author. Thanks for listening and see you next time.